Voice of the Musical. So this is the Voice of the Musical. Um, it's great to be back and uh, to join you all on a very strange day when uh, everybody in Britain has been told we've got to stay indoors apart from the odd jog and uh, pop out for a sausage roll. Uh, not a euphemism at, uh, at lunchtime. Um, so this perhaps is the uh, golden age of the podcast and indoor activities in general. Um, it's lovely to be speaking to you again. Um, I'll tell you a bit more about my news uh, presently, but for the time being, I'm very, very happy to, to be joined by um, Jeremy Sams, who perhaps my my foremost mentor in musical theatre, um, and his foremost mentor was is Stephen Sondheim, whose foremost mentor was Oscar Hammerstein. So I, I feel I feel connected, thanks to you, Jeremy. Uh, I have many things to thank you for. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about your background, first of all, about your uh, your upbringing and your musical upbringing? Yes, of course. And hello to everybody. Um, I think this is the golden age of the podcast, and it's so nice to talk. And I've been talking to all sorts of people in the last few days and about all sorts of things, and I think this will be the future. So from the future to the past, my background was in originally nothing to do with stage, but everything to do with music. So my father is was a musicologist, um, and he brought me up to appreciate particularly um, German leader and French song, French melody, German song. That, that was my background. The one thing he did teach me, which was I've never forgotten and has stood me in happy stead. And for all of you, by the way, who are, who are homeschooling their kids, um, that was me. I was in many ways homeschooled. Obviously, I went to school, but we had a regime of keyboard harmony, French and German. <laughs> which were this is <laughs> everything a growing boy needs absolutely right i mean i haven't my take i take my son to the football we, uh, this hasn't been quite perpetuated but so that was it I, once a fortnight i had keyboard harmony lessons and um and french and german and the thing that my dad did show me which was really remarkable was this that we i would work with him on schubert songs and Brahms songs and duparc songs and Fauré and ravel and he would say the reason this music is like this is because the poem is doing this. Um, because the author, composer, is feeling this about the poem, this is why the music does this. Mm. And I have hold, held that truth to be self-evident all my life. And funnily enough, um, it's not, not even something I thought about. I just thought everyone knew that. Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> that was, you know, that was part of it, my education. So... I was also a piano player and eventually went to uh, Guildhall as a piano player, having been having done languages and then music at university. Um, so my life continued pootling along in the classical music world. Um, I accompanied song recitals and clarinet recitals and I played for rehearsals and that kind of thing. Um, still not much um, connection with the world of musical comedy or musical theatre, but with opera. Yes. So I worked, um, one of my first jobs was at the Opera House in Brussels. I was a coach there, because that's quite handy, because I could speak the languages and I could play the piano and stuff. So I worked on um, <clears throat> opera coaching. And again, no sense at all. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because it's 
abs the absence of this was remarkable considering how present it is in my life now. No sense that the reason someone sings is because of how, who they are and what they feel. Right. Um, I thought of, I think I thought of, thought of, um, uh, so, you know, a lot of opera, for example, as instrumental music with voices, like a lot of people still do. Yes. And I remember working on, I was working on a great opera, Cendrillon, Cinderella by Massenet, with Anne Murray, now Dame Anne Murray. And she said, I want every semi-quaver upbeat to be a semi-quaver. I want every quaver upbeat to be a quaver. And I want to do everything exactly as Massenet has written it. So I remember as, a, as an Ed memoir, I said to her, okay, imagine this, that when it's a semi-quaver upbeat, it's a sudden thought. And when it's a, when it's a crotchet upbeat, then it's a deep, slow thought. Ah, yes, that sort of thing. And I invented that system. I didn't invent it, my God, but I <laughs> invented it for the moment just as a way of her memorizing which, which it was. Hmm. Now, to me at the time, it was vital it had to be a semi-quaver upbeat because that's what was in the score. Yes. Um, but I started thinking, well, and she, she found it very easy to memorize it. And bit by bit, we, we worked on the whole role. She was getting a character from the accuracy of the music. Hmm. And it suddenly seemed to me, but this is it. This is the character. This is why she sings what she sings, because she is this person in this place with this problem. Hmm. And that was a bit of a dawning thing. And that continued for a bit. And I worked in... Um, playing for rehearsals of all sorts of things and coaching singers. And I think my sense of, of theatre was growing, although I was nowhere near a theatre. Mm. Um, and it all changed because of my, my, one of my mentors, the late, great Stephen Pimlot. And <clears throat> I was working with him on Gilbert and Sullivan. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. And um, we recorded... Um, all of the operettas, uh, and I was the musical director, and Stephen was working on this thing. Um, he directed The Sorcerer, I think it was. Great favourite of mine. Which so, is the, the, um, the first of their Savoy operas. The first full-length one, yes. Mm. Trial by Jury is the first short one. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, just, I, I, I correct knee-jerkly. I'm <laughs> 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 <And> slightly rude. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so... We worked on that, and he said to me something very odd. He said, you should be working in theatres. Mm. Um, I think I might have told you this before, Tim, because it's, it's close to my heart, but, um, uh, and because we're all friends. Um, I, so he said, you should be working in theatres. That's where you belong. And I, and I literally said, I have no idea what you mean. I've never worked in <laughs> theatre. I don't know what that means. He said more than that. He said, you should write music for theatre. That's what you should do. And... People say these things airily to people. And then, as I got to know him, he said, I'm doing a show quite soon in, um, in Manchester. I want you to be the composer and the musical director. And uh, I, know, I said yes. He, he wanted music in the style of Poulenc and Ravel. And he said, can you write music in the style of Poulenc and Ravel? I said, you, you bet I can do that. I mean, that can do that. That was a bit of a party piece, you know. I mean, um, anyone who loves Poulin and Gambravel can sit at the piano and find some minor ninths, you know, um, or some tunes. So I did some music, in the, and, but I arrived in the theatre, which is the Royal Exchange in Manchester, in rehearsals, um, 
walked in the room and the only feeling I had, I was 27, I think, was what has kept you. Mm. Uh, and this instant feeling, which I've never had in the classical music world of belonging or being part of anything at all, I felt like a, like a real chancer. I was, <laughs> I was, I was a real chancer. Um, you know, because my piano playing was, was self-taught, so it's rather finite, so I, w- I would be using all sorts of skullduggery mm. to get through. Funnily enough, I can now recognise it sometimes in other piano players. <laughs> I think, ah, gotcha. Um, so, are the sense of... You're a self, of, self-isolated pianist. You're exactly right. But the sense of, 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 of making sense, of belonging, of having a purpose. So I've had all these little party pieces, playing the piano, doing music in other people's styles, translating languages, inventing rhymes and anagrams and puzzles and all those things, which I previously thought of as solitary pursuits. But actually, and you know this as well as I do, the wonderful thing about the theatre is that whatever you can do, whatever your knack is, they will use it. And... um, and people who find themselves working in theatres, like me, like you, use whatever skills we have. And it can be anything. It can be, you know, I look at people in wardrobe and stage management and, and all sorts of other skills within the theatre. And they're none of them in any way different from me. They're all people who are using what they can mm. to, make, to feel they're in a place that makes sense. And I mentioned family... Um, and being taught all these things, I was, and that's great. But that wasn't what you might call a family. It was, it was almost like a, a, a boot camp, an intellectual <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up in the theatre as a musical director, as a composer, and that went really quickly because from the Royal Exchange, my next show was with Nick Heitner. After that, I became pretty much the house composer at Stratford-upon-Avon. I was the musical director of the orchestra there. I wrote lots of big scores for many years and ended up writing music um, for, for plays and being around plays. Now, all at that time, various musical theatre projects sort of started emerging. Um, I did a version of The Blue Angel at Liverpool, God, it was terrible, um, <laughs> for which I wrote loads and loads of songs. And that wasn't really a musical, but I was writing loads of songs. And all the people I'd work I'd known, like Kurt Weill, like Stephen Sondheim, like Rodgers and Hammerstein, all came into play. Quite early on, also, I was a musical director of Carousel at the Royal Exchange, um, which um, Stephen Pimlock directed. So, yeah, The Blue Angel in Liverpool was the first like musical I wrote. And that was basically songs. And I was writing a lot of songs for Shakespeare shows. Mm. Um, but I soon discovered that the, the, what was interesting was underlay music, was music that pushed things forward. And I was massively educated in that by people like Nicholas Heitner, who are amazing musicians. Mm. And, and then I eventually worked as a composer all over the place. Um, I did loads of shows at the National Theatre, I did Wind in the Willows for Nick Heitner, which some of the older people may remember. People still come to me and say, I saw that when I was eight, it changed my life. Uh, I became a badger. Um, <laughs> and uh, I did a show called Ghetto, which was 
there, and I was musical director of Sunday in the Park with George at the National Theatre. Um, I wrote the music for Trevor Nunn's first production of Arcadia. So intermittently, some quite famous, or had become famous shows, I was sort of part of. But um, so in the meanwhile, having stopped, having been a musical director for musicals, I eventually became um, other things in musicals. I became a director and I wrote lyrics and I translated lyrics and I wrote books. And by the end of it, every sort of part of it, really. Mm -hmm. When it comes to putting up a musical theatre, I've done most parts of the creativity of it, um, with the exception of choreography. But, um, <laughs> but I've, I've worked variously at various times on most, en most angles of it. And they vary from the bish bash bosh of taking a musical, huge, huge, I've done huge shows, like the sound of music at the Palladium and the Wizard of Oz at the Palladium, mm. and that they both had a month's tech and a month's previews. That's one end of it, and that's like organising Dunkirk. <laughs> and the other end of it is on is the thing that you and I know well, which is working on a computer or a yellow legal pad, trying mm. to get that little line to to ping as it goes along that <laughs> word on the way through to that word, and that is microsurgery. Mm compared to, or in your, using those, that's close-up magic. <laughs> the, rest is, the rest is David Copperfield, you know what I mean? So, and it's jigsaw puzzles as well. Yes, absolutely right. Um, so every bit of it interests me, but most of all what interests me is the things I didn't have when I was a kid, which is theatre. Mm. My dad was a Shakespeare scholar. He wasn't remotely interested in how a play would work on the stage. Mm. It meant nothing to him whatsoever. Um, he's interested in, he'd always talk about Shakespeare as a, as a poet. You know? um, so that part of it is the bit that was nothing to do with my father at all. Directing uh, plays and musicals. And um, I've been doing that in various ways for the last, gosh, getting on for... 40 years maybe um so there's lots and lots and lots of stuff and what is it about the theater do you think that you know over over and beyond the plays and the musicals that has this this draw for people from all walks of life to come together into a family i don't know it's interesting i always think of it you know that in close encounters of the third kind <laughs> when everyone discovers they're making models of that mountain out of mashed potatoes <laughs> and they don't know why yes and then they meet all these other guys who've been making the mountain out of plastic. Yes, and the horse dung. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I, well, I, I could I could expand on it. I think, interestingly, um, mm, there's all sorts of. I know that actors having actors and theatre people like you and I have in common is that we wish to express ourselves physically as much as intellectually. Mm. Um, that we believe that a group of people can make something that wasn't there before because there's a group of people. Um, I'm very interested in, in a person in a place with a problem. Mm. And I think you can do that best and most excitingly on a stage because you've got a space, yes. you've got a person, and the problem is the show. Mm. 
if you see what I mean. Yes. Um, so, you know, I've instantly think about Stephen Sondheim's Passion, a show I'm just reading about at the moment, because mm. it's his birthday, mm. which I directed. That's, you know, that is on a stage with a, a woman who has a problem, and because of her problem, her music is in a certain way, mm. and because her music is in a certain way that structures the piece in a certain way, but it comes from uh, a story. Yes. And I think that's the thing that I'm interested in. And I think we all are. Having said that, I'm, at the moment, I'm translating Schumann songs and Schubert songs. But actually, I'm making story. The reason I would never translate poetry before is because my dad said, opera, you can translate opera because that's story, but you can't translate poetry because that's thought. Mm. Actually, I don't. I no longer believe there is such a thing as thought. I think everything's story. Mm. So, you know, Keats um, uh, contemplating a, a, a you know a hillside, or Shelley thinking, thinking about a skylark. What now interests me is that poet got up on that day and went to that place and and had a mood which was changed by something that he or she saw. And when they went home, they were different to their loved ones than they were before because they saw the thing that happened during the day. Mm -hmm. And that's story. And that's, um, I think, more... And that's how poetry um, can get... can become theatre, I think. I think story is is the thing that all these things have in common. And I also think that music has story. Yes. And for a long time, again, I'm talking a lot to, to you about things I've misunderstood. For a long time, I thought that there's this thing called music, which I was brought up with, which was, which is Mozart string quartets and, and Brahms songs. Yes. And then there's this other thing called theatre, which is exciting and people do things. <laughs> but it always... At the back of my mind, I was thinking, isn't it interesting how very musical theatre is and how very theatrical music is? So, since I mentioned Mozart's string quartet, you might think that, um, well, what's this? A group of people get together and they introduce themselves and one person, then, then someone says something and they think about it for a bit and someone says something else. Then often they go off and discuss it. And then having discussed it, they, they repeat it, but they repeat it in a way that's different because of having discussed it. Mm. Now, that could be, if you like, a scene in Chekhov, or it could be the first movement of a Beethoven string quartet. Um, and likewise, when I direct plays, I keep on thinking, God, the tectonics, the underlying movement of this is so musical. I, I wish I could, or even plays I've written, I wish I could um, annotate this so mm. I could put a crescendo in here, or a diminuendo, or a rallentando, I'd love to. I really would love to. Um, you know, I think it's, that would be entirely kosher. For example, Beethoven does it in his piano sonatas, yes. and yet every performance is different. So it doesn't, it's not, it's not tyranny, it's just advice. <laughs> so I think that, music, so that plays are very musical, and music is, is, is very theatrical. And the re and I now think that there aren't two things at all, but just one thing. Yes. That's my latest last 10 years thought. Yeah. And if I could find a word, word for it, I would. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's theatre music, music theatre. And actually, I've been wasting my time saying how remarkably similar these two things are. Mm. When in fact, I think all we're really dealing with is any of us, and we know it. 
And that's why those of us who love musicals love musicals, because it's we listen to music and it's theatrical. And it's because music is theatrical and because theatre is musical. And one day I'll invent a word for this one thing, this Gaia theory. Okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> the unified theory of everything. Yes. I mean, Wagner um, had a word for it, I guess. Um, yes. It's Gesamtkunstwerk. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, of course. He's, he's saying that story becomes music. Um, so, yes, his Gesamtkunstwerk, what he's really referring to is all of the arts combined. In other words, stage picture, orchestral skills, singing skills, um, design, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. So that's, and actually, that's what opera means. I mean, what it literally means, it means the works. The works. Yes. Deutsch. Um, <laughs> yeah, opera can be, you know, let's chuck everything at the wall and see what sticks. But it's certainly an attempt. And in Wagner's case, he absolutely is telling stories. Hmm. He's telling stories in a, in, a, in a way in which time, he manipulates time amazingly, and hmm. moves really, really in a particular way. Mm. So, in the ring, for example, it begins at the beginning of time, <laughs> which I would rather like. <laughs> yes. um, and it's pointed out quite a lot. <laughs> yes. um, so, when Wotan has an argument with his wife and she says, you know, when is it possible that, when is it acceptable that, that brother and sister should have incestuous love? Wotan says, honey, it's the beginning of time. We're just starting. <laughs> made the rules yet come we're on. just starting out here you know um he cut me some slack and rather wonderfully when when she goes he has this big r he says fucking women they always just point out the point out the flaws and everything um and then you have a piece like meister singer where time is is using quite a different way and condense almost in real time and mm. um, sometimes so yeah in musical theater what you and I do most of, um, it's time is also, um, it's a, yes, has a different f purpose. Mm. And actually, time is a huge factor that people don't talk about enough in terms of structure. Mm. And it's, it's predicated entirely by what time I'm arriving at the theatre and what time my table is booked at Sardis. <laughs> and those things are really, really important. Yes. Which is why structurally, you know, piece like the Sound of Music, or many, or The King and I, um, or indeed Oklahoma, can't dwell in the way that a play would in a third act, because mm. we have no time for a third act, because mm. we are we are making a commercial piece, and that fits in a certain time because people have got homes to go to and carriages booked and babysitters and nannies and, you know. Um, so, so time moves differently in a. So you can't. There isn't. There are no Act Threes in musicals. There are exceptions, of course. But take Oklahoma. There's a trial scene that's missing. Mm. Take uh, Sound of Music. There's a wedding sequence that's. That, no, I don't mean a wedding. Some big story elements. Mm. For example, when the captain and Maria fall in love. That we have no time for that in in, in Act Two of Sound of Music. And so gloriously, there's a scene where they say, do you know what? I, th must, I think it happened in the past and we didn't notice it. <laughs> I think it happened in Act 1, they say to mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. And they say, yeah, no, you're right. I think it did happen in Act 1, yeah. 
um, thus obviating brilliantly the, the the scenes or the scenes you'd expect, the montage, as it were, where they come close to each other, fall in love, yes. um, etc. Um, this isn't a problem in movies because you can, as you know, Sound of Music had an intermission. Yes. Out there. Um, but it, these things are cause structural issues in musical theatre, which is a commercial medium. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it one more time. Difference between opera and musicals. Um, opera is a way of spending money. Musicals is a way of making money. Mm. And uh, those are, that's, that's dramaturgically true as well as socially true. You want to give value for money in an opera. You want to give value for money in a musical, but it's all got to come at, within your time frame. Hence, 70 girls dancing when the curtain goes up. Mm. Um, Cameron McIntosh always says, show them the money, darling, show them the money. Um, you need, I think, if, if you're doing an expensive, big, splashy commercial musical to show someone something that, them, that their seat price is paid for. Actually, maybe the world's changing on that one. Mm. Maybe it is. I think I came in at the at the end of that rather decadent thing. Yes. Um, yes, the ma the maximalist approach, as I think Mark Stein says. Yes, exactly. And actually, there now shows like you know, Dog in the Nighttime and Warhorse, mm. but actually, there's nothing on the stage. Mm. I mean, actually, Warhorse is a bad example. There is bang for your buck there. When did when were you sort of first aware? Because if you were you know brought up on Foray and uh, and Schubert um, and Massenet. When did you start becoming aware of, of the people who were writing the things that we call musicals, and at what point did it start to kind of eat its way into into your heart, uh, as it were? Well, two th there were two memories I have. One of which is I had a friend at school who uh, who liked musicals. I say no more than that. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, and I decided to pool our pocket money and go up to London to see Fiddler on the Roof. And I don't know why. My, my parents would never organise that. If anything, we went to the Fairfield Halls in Croydon and we saw Schwarzkopf and Fischer Dieskow and that was mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. But my father hated musicals and would have no part of it. Um, so, you, so this guy, John and I, went up to see Fiddler on the Roof, which was, I think, in Her Majesty's in those days. We're talking about the... 68 or 9, maybe? Mm -hmm. um, and I remember seeing the curtain going up and the, the number tradition happened. And I remember thinking something very, very clearly, which is, there can be nothing better than what I am now watching. <laughs> ever, yeah. ever. And it didn't hook me straight away, but I just had this very relaxing feeling that what I'm now watching is as good as anything can be. Yeah, I remember that really clearly. Maybe it was after the seventies, and then I would get records out from Croydon Record Library, and the next big ones for me, I got random stuff out. Now this is me having a free swim because having a, a genius father who knows all music also mm -hmm. mean, means that you're not allowed to go outside his domain, as it were. Yes. I almost secretly picked up random um, stuff from Croydon Library. And the first of those was the, the album of Company, which came out in 1971, I think. Wow, yes. And I remember putting that on my turntable and it going, on go gang, on go gang, on go gang. And I thought, <laughs> there's nothing like this. <laughs> but the reason I, I liked Company straight away was because 
whoever this composer was knew his Ravel as well as I did and mm. knew his Britain and knew his and I liked it because it sounded like the music it sounded like Debussy it sounded mm. like Spati it's um, you know I remember very clearly thinking here in Barcelona and thinking well that's a, that's a gymnopody mm. only because I knew because I, I knew my Sati and my Poulenc well you know what I mean yes yes um, and the other one was Happy End by Kurt Weill and again that sound world absolutely and it's funny isn't it we've never i've never heard anything like that either no but isn't it weird something i've never heard before i felt like i'd loved all my life isn't that weird yeah but very familiar um, as you describe it is um, that, is that, do you have feelings like that yourself com completely i mean for, for me um the first one was which i heard when i was uh about 10 11 was was cats again it was uh, you know it was a uh, that the overture yes uh, to cats was kind of crazy and it was electronic and it was yeah. dissonant and um really really exciting and i th i think that a lot of those shows are a really great way for people of that age to to be encountering theater but then the the thing for me that uh, again the <laughs> this is nottingham public library was it uh, was uh, getting the double LP of Sweeney Todd out. Actually, the first thing was watching the uh, PBS broadcast in my on my sort of black and white telly in my in my room at the age of thirteen. Right. Um, and 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 watching you know Angela Lansbury and, and George Hearn. And again, something which I had no yeah preparation for. Yes. Which simply hit me like a brick. Yes. Um, and when Epiphany came on, I was saying this is extraordinary. This is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And I had I had I had heard the MGM musicals. You know, I sort of stay up late on a New Year's Eve to, to watch Singing in the Rain, and, so, and yes. uh, so I knew the show songs and I loved the show songs. But this was something altogether different. This was a, yes. a, a much higher aspiration in terms of, um, I guess, and what that, Wagner was talking about. I think one of the reasons that, that that things like Company and Sweeney are so amazing is they are made up of the very best of everything. Yes, and. You know, I, when I first heard Sweeney again, um, I knew Wozzeck mm. and, and, and Billy Budd, and they're all over um, uh, Sweeney. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so he's taken the very best of music and the very best of drama, because the main thing about Sondheim is that he's, he's, I mean, I've spent lots of time talking to him. He's not really interested in musicals. What's he's interested in his plays? And... In that respect, he's like Oscar Hammerstein. So he, Oscar, Oscar Hammerstein's real achievement was to take what was happening in theatre, and by the forces, it was all out there. There's Pirandello, and there was, you know, Molnar, and there mm. was... Um, Wilder. Absolutely right. And experimental playwriting all over the place. And in musical theatre, the dramaturgy was st stuck, not even in, in the Edwardian era, it was stuck in some sort of Victorian musical. And Hammerstein, single-handedly, I think, took the, what was current and interesting and possible in theatre and put it into musicals. And Sondheim has, I think, absolutely continued in doing that. And when Sondheim comes to London, um, he'll see eight shows a week, and they're all plays. I mean, he'll see the odd musical, maybe, but basically he's interested in, in theatre. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and... And he's, but to achieve that, he's acquired a deep, deep knowledge of theatre, of music, of character, of orchestration, skill of rhyming, 
And all these things are borrowed and acquired from all over the place. Mm. But one of the reasons I admire Steve so much is he had a really clear idea of what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do. And rigorously went about acquiring deep knowledge and skills to do the things that he needed to do, mm. which is to write theatre as a composer and lyricist. And um, so, for example, he knows more music than anyone I know. 20th century music is unbelievably knowledgeable, deep, mm. deep knowledge of the most obscure composers. Um, before his fire, all of his house was lined with... Um, LPs, and but now it's all on CDs and online, and he listens to music all day. So there's nothing, you know, I've, if you mention Jean-Francais or, mm. or, or Jean-Michel Damas or, or Capustin, <laughs> who he introduced me to, but various <laughs> others, the most, you know, Murren symphonies and, yes. you know, everything. And Scandinavian composers you've never heard of, he just knows all music, and he knows theatre. He doesn't read. He doesn't read fiction. Mm. Um, he has reference books, but no fiction. But he's, so it's movies for him and um, classic and contemporary music, mostly, from Rachmaninoff, Brahms Rachmaninoff onwards, so from 1880 onwards. Um, and theatre. But all these things are acquired not, not as, a, as a hobby, but as bricks and mortar to make things with. Mm. And that's, that's why we are knocked sideways with the quality of Sweeney Todd, because it is a distillate of Bernstein, of Weill, of Rogers, of Ravel, of Britain, of, you know, you name it. Mm. And um, Bernard Herrmann, famously. And of course, Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, movie composers, Bernard Herrmann, Brian Easton, also, you know, um, Korngold, um, mm. all sorts of people um, are distilled in that. And it's interesting, it's a late work. Mm. You know, these pieces, these great pieces by him are not early. He's mm. not a, he's not a, a wunderkind at all. Mm. He's acquired all of this stuff and, and, and over quite a long time um, to write the stuff he has to write. And it is a miracle he's been spared to, to write as much as he has, which is amazing. You do a lot of uh, teaching, both of, uh, of actors and of, uh, and of writers. How do you see your, um, your role? I mean, for a, for a start, is, is that something that you uh, feel is a central part of your, of your work? Um, yes, I have. Um, what I've tried to learn over the years, unsuccessfully, is to give advice, time and teaching only when asked. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'm very capable of um, giving teaching and advice, etc., to people who haven't actually asked for it or wanted. But um, are you saying that doesn't necessarily end well? It doesn't necessarily end well. Well, for the very simple reason that even when I'm asked, the people who ask me don't necessarily want to hear it. Mm. And the skill of it's actually something I've learned a, 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 a lot more about over the last ten, fifteen years. Is as I'm sure you have too is how to teach, yes. how to listen, how to take what someone is doing and just make it better. And actually, I think that's something that I'm okay at, which is making things better. Mm. And that's very different from making Sweeney Todd. Mm. Um, 
I think I could take you maybe take an early draft of Sweeney Todd and improve it a bit or right. help improve it a bit. But making something is quite different from making things better. And funnily enough, I've been writing plays recently and um, it's really hard because normally I make other people's work better by translating, by adapting, by changing, by, and all that. So what I actually had to do is the first play I wrote was to write a really, well, here's my plan, to write a really bad play and, <laughs> then, and then improve it. Yeah. And I remember when I, when I finished it thinking, well, the first boss of that plan is going really well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed write a really terrible play. But actually, I think that's what people do. They put clay on the wheel and they make it better. Mm. And I think I've got better at, with actors, giving an, rather than just talking endlessly like I am to you now, but giving the thing that will help. Because mm. <clears throat> also, actors make that easy for you. You can, give them, you can give an actor 10 notes and they nod for five or six and their eyes shine on two mm. and the other two they ignore. Yeah. Uh, so actors know very clearly that they need something. And when you give it, if it's the right thing, it just... A proper actor, and I've seen it so many times, they cannot wait to get back on the stage or back on the rehearsal to do the thing that they know will make, make more sense to them. Mm -hmm. So noting is good. A problem I have, though, which you have as well, which is teaching people about how to write, um, is that I, some people don't want to write in a way that I think is correct. Mm. That's tricky. Mm. Um, so, you know, why should I rhyme correctly? Mm -hmm. uh, why should I, why, why does it need to scan? Mm -hmm. uh, and I have various answers to that, but the main one is that the people I admire do that. <laughs> <laughs> and also it's clarity, mm. you know, and the big thing which writers find hard with, and the good thing about being a director is I have learned more and more about clarity. Because mm. I can put fuckloads of stuff into something, but actually in a theatre, what actually comes across? What simple thing comes across? And um, so I find when people overload their lyrics or their music or aren't, um, or are too complicated or, or get things in a mess, at the point of sale, and that's what I'm interested in, mm. The point of sale, which is when a piece hits an audience, because, you know, I've been talking about structure and, and, and shapes. The missing thing is this, that none of this means anything until an audience who are also had their day and their life and they've come into the theatre, where it hits them is where it happens. Where the cold front hits the, the, the warm front, it, there's rain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and where audiences, and I'm very interested to see so many people doing stuff online, what, how that, I was watching, um, have you been seeing these Shakespeare shows, someone doing the Shakespeare plays at the moment with many actors, all on Zoom? No, no. It's cool. Then they started with Two Gentlemen of Verona, and they've really re rehearsed it. So when there's a, when Julia gets sent a letter, as it were, um, there's a letter, a piece of paper saying to Julia, and the person hands it off right and then someone on the next Zoom thing picks it up left, as it were, as if it's, <laughs> as if it's been passed to them. Oh, fantastic. And it, there we go. That, those moments made me emotional. Mm. 
because there was an, an because there was a simulation of contact between people, actors, and that was almost enough for me. That was just great. Mm. Oh, the other thing was, you know, the scene with Lance and his dog. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the actors had a dog, and the dog was in the in shots all the time. It's really, really delightful, and then they'd done a little homework, and they had a big company, and they had a couple of um, standbys as well. Um, if anyone, <laughs> as they may, in these it, difficult times, it, you know, indeed, yes. You know, well, you say that when you say the problem is the play, that's the uh... yes, and that's very interesting. And isn't it interesting how? what's happening in the world right now is so much part of our lives. I can't look at a TV show with where people are, are hugging and kissing and sitting next to each other in cars. I'm like, dude, don't do that. <laughs> yes. Do you find that? I mean, it's really, I mean, there's, there's going to be a post-plague and a pre-plague world. Mm. Mm. And I'd almost much rather watch 30s movies now than, than stuff that was last week. Yeah. Yeah, so when we're allowed to shake hands again, it's going to feel incredibly intimate, I think. Yes. And strange. And, um, of course, you know, I, I started this podcast to, uh, you know, to be reaching out and giving a resource for, for young writers. Um, now the whole business of what we were, we're doing it for, putting people in theatres uh, to watch people on stages is uh, we took for granted that was you know that was the <laughs> that was the thing you could take for granted yes um, and now those uh, those truths are not self-evident yes I mean how do you feel doing magic online can you sense an audience I can I can sense my own the the integrity of my own performance Yes, um, that's what I that's what I can sense. I know when I'm on on form, in flow, um, and I know when I'm not. Um, because of that, when you're getting when it's going well, can you? And I think I would um, imagine people smiling and laughing and enjoying. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, and I guess I, that my experience of that is probably informed by my experience of performing for live audiences and and yeah. the. And the Simply the years of doing it, of knowing when I do this, when I when I am projecting uh, a confidence, um, when I may when the mechanics of the thing are so sub level yes. that everything else is about performance and about communication, um, then that's when I know it's going well. It's funny because talking about Sondheim and Sweeney Todd, the mechanics are sub level there. Yes, the skills are deep, deeply ingrained. Mm. And that's one issue I have a lot with, a huge amount actually, and it's the biggest issue I have with people who write at the moment, mm. is how, how people will put out their first drafts mm-hmm. as a finished thing. I mean, it's, and sometimes they're not even a started thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the hard work aspect of acquiring knowledge um, particularly with young people, it seems to be something that's, and that is not valued in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, here's the odd thing, I found it with my own son and others, is that now everything is available. Think <laughs> of a mouse. And, you know, you and I have both talked about going to public libraries and getting out things and taking them home and, you know, and valuing the thing in your hand that 
would make the noise, and, you know. <laughs> and but now yeah, I could watch. We could watch every sometime musical in some shape or form mm. online today. Mm. And you know, um, Antiphonie literally, actually not literally, but almost literally, everything is there. Mm. And yet, people don't seem to dive into these ready available pools. But you and I went foraging, didn't we? We really did. Yeah, so I was just thinking there's the um, great Canadian magician Di Vernon went on a road trip across the the Midwest trying to track down this legendary card cheat who uh, was reputed to to, to be the only person in the world that could do could deal from the center of the deck wow. this, this knowledge was so valuable that he sort of spent months literally hunting down this guy um, uh, called Alan Kennedy um, in order to learn the the secret so I, I think I think it is that uh, that thing I think there's a huge um, benefit. You, should, you should write about that, Tim. Are there yeah. books that, that tell these stories? There are, yes, there are. Okay. Um, yes, uh, you know, they are oh, fascinating yeah. tales because, and and again, there the the knowledge of the mechanics of card magic was, and indeed all close-up magic was so underground that you'd have manuscripts going for a hundred dollars. You know, there was the. Famously, the hundred dollar manuscript of, of Divernon. <laughs> <laughs> well, well named. Yes. <laughs> he didn't have to reach too too deep for that. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that was the uh, the sequel to the twenty dollar manuscript. He obviously, <laughs> re- recognised a good thing when he saw it. Um, and uh, and yes, these the, this information was extremely hard to get hold of either in printed form or through mentorship. Um, and you you had to, to prove your prove your worth um and i think there's there are huge benefits to the universality of access to information and to resource but i think there is also the uh the the, the concomitant danger of uh, complacency within that yeah and more than that i've i i find there are people who say i'm going to do a card trick anyway sure even though i haven't got the skill sure um and it's interesting. So it, it's very relaxing when I come across people like Lin-Manuel Miranda or Jonathan Larson, mm. who who know their Sondheim as well as you and I, you know, if not better. And mm-hmm. um, so, and so, I think with Lin-Manuel's, I think what's great there, and it does prove that deep knowledge and deep um, obsession with musical theatre, and in his case, with the added the added thing of rap and hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, which is marvellous. Uh, um, that's what makes these pieces last and succeed. Mm. Not someone who's given it a go. And it's certainly not a pop writer who's given it a go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think things that haven't got deep roots wither on the vine, if that's not too mi- a mixed metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, musicals are, are really hard, aren't they? I don't, so what, why is it, do you think, <laughs> everyone seems to uh, to want to... to to write one, I mean, they, they are... yes, people don't want to juggle five clubs, do they? Um, mm-hmm. um, no, they are very, 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 very hard. Um, and you know, Sondheim would say and has said to someone who writes a good song, "Yeah, write, show me the first five songs of Act One." Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's very, very, it is very, very hard and um, hard to achieve and hard to do. And even, and the greatest fail. 
mm. at it. Mm. And actually, funnily enough, it's quite easy to gauge a failure in a musical. Because <laughs> um, it, it just, you know, it flops. And it doesn't happen. So, and sometimes, I mean, I'll give you a really good example. People don't know necessarily what they've written. Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote um, Oklahoma and Carousel, as you know. Mm. And those two shows were experimental shows. Mm. But they're also set in a sort of homespun, um, sentimental America. But most of all, they were theatre experiments, and they came from experimental theatre companies and did things that no one had done before, like the hero dying, um, or starting with, you know, with one person singing off stage and things like that. Mm. All very experimental. And they were both massive world hits, as you, as you know. Rodgers and Hammerstein could not work out for the life of them which bit of it was making them hits. <laughs> the experimental bit mm. or, the, or the homespun story, etc. bit, mm. um, America. Um, and um, so they wrote their third musical, which is called Allegro, mm -hmm. which is entirely experimental. And they discovered <laughs> <laughs> the answer to the question. <laughs> because because that had a bigger advance than any you can I mean, the people who wrote Carousel in Oklahoma here's their new show you're going to buy because that advance dwindled really quickly and it became famously an amazing experiment but a but a flop mm. and then they went on from there to do American shows again or more specifically American abroad shows with South Pacific and King and I and and so on. They played, what, as you might say, more safe from there. But people don't know necessarily why things succeed mm. as much as why they flop. And those are really good examples. Oklahoma Carousel, the authors had no idea why they were successful. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and you could argue that Allegro is sort of, was very much trying to be, but again, experimental and homespun. Absolutely right. Sort of skin of our teeth uh, view of... No, no, it's, it's exactly that. It, it, it is, you know, it has, it has a white picket fence around it. Mm. You know, it really is that. But it has, you know, it is experimental in many, many ways. With Greek choruses and, and fluid staging and all sorts of things. Um, I happen to absolutely love it. And listeners to this podcast will know, of course, that Stephen Sondheim was working on that show as the gopher. And he was a, a production assistant on, on Allegro. And he's famously said he's been trying to fix Allegro ever since. <laughs> as a writer, you, you've worked with the great uh, Michel Legrand. I have, yes. A man who doesn't have a, a really a theatrical bone in his body, or mm -hmm. didn't. Um, he's absolutely not a theatre person. He never had the sort of um, <clears throat> epiphany that some of us did. He's just, he's, I say just, he's an amazing and wonderful, wonderful composer mm. um, of m melody. He's the, the most remarkable melodist I've ever come across. And the, and the music pours out of him. And I've literally watched it pour out of him. I sat at pianos with playing with him and watching him make things um, in front of my eyes. Mm. And my astonishment. Um, <laughs> Absolutely right. I mean, we worked on this show which became called Amour in the end, and we got to know each other quite well. And I, one number he'd written for the original French version, which I, and I said, you know what, Michelle, I think you can do better than this. 
And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think you can do better. Well, you mean something like this? He sat at the piano and wrote a number in front of me, which is <laughs> amazing. And the two of us would write songs together. And his rule was, if, you, if the song wasn't finished by lunch, then it mm. wasn't writing. <laughs> so after breakfast in a hotel in Paris or LA or London or New York, and we worked in all those places, um, and we'd finish it by lunch. Mm. Um, and that was it. And I'm sure I've told you this before. I used to, I, when we worked together, I used to play always. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and because I, his stuff falls under my fingers very easily because I've been playing it since I was eight, <laughs> since I first heard the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, yeah. which, I, which I remember going to the piano straight away and trying to recreate as much as I, that was the, you know, for Mozart, it was the Legri Miserere. And, <laughs> You do get a few, quite a few passes at that tune, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, no, you, yeah, exactly right. You, you can catch it on the eighth time round, probably. <laughs> um, actually, funnily enough, that's a good example. When I was a kid at the piano improvising and picking up tunes off the radio, I would make myself, I think my dad told me this, to play everything in all 11 possible keys, as mm -hmm. it were. Mm. Um, so if I learned to tune in, in C major, I would then have to play it in the E flat and G flat and any, every key. That was part of our, our keyboard harmony teaching. Because there's no point in learning a number in one key because you learn nothing about how, how, the, how the notes relate to each other. So that was, as I say, my rather recherche childhood. <laughs> anyway, I, when I first met Michel or worked with him, I'd often warm up by playing something and he would say, oh, that's beautiful. Who wrote that? And I'd say, you did. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's beautiful. Play it again. It's beautiful. Wonderful. I love it. He would forget. He wrote loads of stage musicals, all of which he's forgotten. They all, and most of them died on the road, um, like hedgehogs. Um, and um, so, yeah. But he could never, he didn't have a sense of what a finale was. Mm. And occasionally, and I'd, sometimes when we were working together, I'd make him, I need a finale here. Mm. And he'd say, well, you know, can you organize one for me? <laughs> and I would a bit. Uh, it, you know, and there's, there are great examples of that. This is much more posh than me and Michel Legrand. Um, Stephen Sondheim and Julius, Julius Stein. So a piece like Rose's turn mm. is organized or some of the finales in that is organized by, by Sondheim because Julius Stein is a songwriter. He's not a theater writer as such. He's a songwriter. So how do you turn something that's more than a song, something that travels, something that's about character like Rose's turn. And that was entirely put together by Sondheim of with like a mosaic with fragments of the score. Yes. So much so that quite a lot of it is stuff that was then cut on the road, but is still to be heard, mm. like fossils, vestigially, <laughs> in, in Rose's time, you know. Other people's secrets bursting to be known. My mysterious husband has secrets of his own. Me, I have my daydreams until they all come true other people's stories will do she makes the starlight shine the perfect wife not mine the iridescent isabel it's interesting actually in terms because uh, i guess you're talking about um 
Michel Legrand sort of almost being the antithesis of Sondheim in the sense of, or, or, or Julie Stein being the antithesis of Sondheim in the, in, in the sense of they're not architects of, I mean, they're architects of musical structure, and of course, melodically, um, Michel Legrand's melodies are, are the most extraordinary melodies you could imagine. Um, but in terms of the actual spade work of putting a score together. Yes, that's exactly right. So Michel is the opposite of of uh, of Steve. And Andrew Lloyd Webber actually falls somewhere in between. Mm. Andrew's a songwriter, um, but he's really very, very influenced and very interested in Puccini and um, Rodson Hammerstein. He worships both of those things and he knows them all incredibly well. Mm. So in a sense, he's like Lin-Manuel Miranda, and they're very good friends. Mm. But Andrew puts a rock sensibility onto musical theatre in this, exactly the same way that Lin-Manuel does put a, a rap or hip-hop sensibility onto musical theatre. Um, and there may be people who will do similar things with other genres, but what they have in common is that they are, they have deep, Andrew has a deep knowledge of opera and of Rodgers and Hammerstein and of classic musicals. He really knows his stuff. Mm. And he also has a deep knowledge of the Big Bopper and, um, <laughs> and Buddy Holly and, you know. Yes, and the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers, exactly right. So uh, what would be your advice to somebody starting out as a, you know, with a d deep desire to, to write musical theatre? Um, you know, I, I guess you've given <laughs> lots of great advice already. Is it about listening is it about having you know keyboard harmony yeah i mean all those things um gosh i don't write musicals i don't write complete musicals i don't do it so i can't give my own background as a as a template for because i i mean i may and god knows i now have time but um <laughs> but i you know i don't do everything on a musical so mm -hmm. i i can advise on bits of it I would say a question, which is this, why wouldn't you want to listen to a musical a day, mm. for example, or to read a script of a musical mm. every day or every other day? Why wouldn't you want to do that mm. um, right now? Or why wouldn't you want to play a tune in a different key once you've worked it out? <laughs> um, so that would be my those sort of things that I think that are particularly now if we have time and we do mm. um, to explore to to read and I would I mean the, the thing I mostly say to people who say they want to work in musicals I say yeah go to the theatre go to the theatre as much as you possibly can now that's not going to happen but we can watch things we can observe things we can um, I think this might be a great chance to add to our sum of knowledge because I can't see the harm. And, um, and we don't need to write something tomorrow. We can write it next month. And maybe this is the time to uh, try things out. That's the only thing that I find is difficult about, about people nowadays, which is, and also the places where you and I both teach, obviously there is a pressure to write a song a week, and that's great. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, that requires a lot, a lot of work, mm. it really does, and um, and and a lot of waste paper baskets overflowing with crunched up yellow pieces <laughs> of paper. Yeah, you know, um, 
And there is something also about writing on Sibelius and on machines and logic and that sort of thing that I find when I, because I'm a pen, pen and paper man and pretty much have been always. And as you know, I've, I've tried to teach myself the skills that you find very easy. <laughs> um, and, um, but I'm still a pen and paper man. And um, there is something, however, when I started writing on machines, I'd write a phrase and then I would work on it and, and put it up all the velocities on it and maybe score it. And I would treat this phrase like it was God's gift. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. It's just something happened to splonge, splonge onto my machine, you know. Mm. And I find sometimes that the thing about machines is, is it seems to, it, one should be able to eject a lot more. Mm-hmm. It seems to somehow glorify the, the, the less than interesting idea sometimes. There's nothing that can't be made better. Yeah. And having seen sometimes legal pads of lines, things, you know, lists of rhymes and things crossed out and, you know, rewriting is what writing is. Um, and that's what I, and that's why we need to have high standards because you have to say, no, that's not good enough. And you were saying you can sort of, you can find the cut songs from Fiddler on, online and... Uh... Absolutely. There's about 27 of them and they're all fantastic. I was listening the other day to the cut songs from Sweet Charity, uh, about two or three Cy Coleman songs, heart-stoppingly beautiful character songs, mm. really marvellous, never made it. Mm. Uh, and actually, since you mentioned Julie Stein, a lot of his were, were, were um, what sometimes called Eine Kleine Trunk music. <laughs> <laughs> from, the, from the bottom drawer. And even in Gypsy, he's, he's, he slipped quite a couple in. He did, yes. I think he was r- rather rather proud of being able to uh, sneak them by Steve, who was obviously yeah. uh, <laughs> thought this, uh, this approach was, was anathema, certainly to him. Yeah. The idea that there is a show which a song should fit or be part of is such an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've known shows refuse reject a song like a body might reject a transplant organ mm. literally that <laughs> and we did a show uh, show once with jason robert brown and there's a number he wanted to put in and we put it in the show and the show refused it <laughs> the show rejected it yeah and the actors came off stage having done it and they were all felt that they'd been in and seen something horrible they didn't even want to talk <laughs> they didn't even want to talk about it <laughs> It was like we'd seen into a room we didn't ever go into again. And um, it's not always that clear, however. But, you know, it's only pre-Oscar Rodgers and Hammerstein that you could be like Gershwin and take a song like The Man I Love and put it in five different shows. Mm-hmm. Or put Bill in, in Showboat having had it in some other, sh- other couple of shows. But having said that, there are, there are other things now with jukebox musicals. And, but, but funnily enough, what one does on those, what one should do on those, and when they work, they work really well, is to write the songs that, is, is to organise your book cleverly enough so that it can only result in the song which you have up your sleeve anyway. Mm. So to, and the cleverest example of that, I think, is, is Jersey Boys, which is a fantastic show and I can't recommend highly enough. Mm. Um, where eventually the song answers the question posed by the book. Mm. It, has to, it has to come. Um, and of course, what happened was they start off with the songs and they have to write the book around it. But if you can write your book as if it causes your songs to be 
um, and they're famous songs, then, but that's a real skill. Mm -hmm. A lot of time and workshopping, it really does. Jeremy Sams, it's been such a pleasure to be able to, uh, to talk to you in these weird times. Thank you so much for being a guest on Voice of the Musical. My pleasure. And I would say times of hope, wouldn't you? Absolutely. You have been listening to Voice of the Musical, presented by me, Tim Sutton, with our special guest, Jeremy Sams. Please like and subscribe and leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Thanks so much. See you next time.